Okay, um, so this week we are tackling, uh, we're finishing up book one and starting book two, which of course is inside the book of mere Christianity. And um, hopefully everyone had a chance, well first of all, if, if everyone needs a book, we have books over here, by the way, you didn't get one last week. So, um, so hopefully you found the reading interesting. Uh, okay, great, so... Um, for those who were able to read it, I, before we start the, the sheet of paper, let's ask, uh, do you guys have anything that stood out in the reading that you found most interesting or had some questions about what, what he was actually talking about? Um, let's handle those first because we could talk about whatever. So, I mean, I got an idea, but it doesn't have to be it. Does anyone have anything that was interesting, confusing, Apparently, it's boring and understandable. That's great. Okay. Chapter 4. All right. Um, what lies behind the law? Well, over the last... Oops. There we go. Last week, Pastor Bukes uh, laid out kind of the initial uh, point of morality and that the notion of things being just or unjust or right or wrong, making those statements already you are at, you, you're heading towards something in terms of something above those things. And in uh, so chapter 4, Lewis now gets to the point where if you have morality or moral law, law of nature, he, you know, he calls it a few things, there has to be someone or something that is informing what that is. You know, it just can't randomly happen on its own. If you don't have a handout, Jan's got some here. So, um, and this, this is kind of the question that he's answering in chapter 4. Now, the two views of the universe that he lays out is a materialist worldview and a, what he calls a religious worldview. At the end of chapter of the chapter, he notes that there might be a third option, but it's just a, a, a version of the other two. So a materialist worldview is simply where materials and space have been around forever and happen by chance. Uh, what you see is what you get, and truth is basically uh, observable. Uh, okay. Now, and then the religious view is they ask the kind of question, what's behind the universe is a mind or, or, or so, there has a purpose to it and prefers one thing over another. These are real basic statements. But I think it's important for us to really uh, approach this topic as, because as we talk about it, there's often, especially when you talk in the wider society, these two worldviews sometimes get mesh-mashed together like Lewis noted at the end of the chapter. Um, so in order to kind of make sure that we keep things nice and tidy, let's a little talk about the role of science. Lewis says that with respect to the religious world, or finding out which one is right or wrong, you can't use science to show which one is the correct one or the, 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 the wrong one. And just, just in case you don't remember from high school science class or junior high science class or elementary school, I, I can't remember when you learned this in school, uh, the scientific method. Yeah, 
Um, I bring this up because is it grade school? I think it's grade school, right? Junior high age. All right. And and my explanation of the scientific method is appropriate for that. So if there's any scientists in here who would like to expand it, please do. I went to pastor school. <laughs> but I uh, so science is the study of things, creation. And I don't know if even scientists would use the word creation. I think they would, but it's the study of the world, the universe around us. And the purpose is to discover truth. truth. And when they mean truth, it means in the provable sense, that it can be proven. So you see something, you guess what happens, a hypothesis, right? Then you test your guess, that's experimentation. And if your guess is right, then you need to repeat it over and over and over again and if other people can do it, just like you do it, then you have truth, scientific truth. Um, now, of course, if, that is, if that's strictly speaking the scientific method, then if you apply this to these, these worldviews, I mean, you, can, you can't really prove anything. Science can't necessarily prove why things are the way they are in terms of purpose. They can explain why it will snow on Sunday because of weather and things, but, you know... Why did my roof cave in because of the snow? It cannot. In terms of purpose. Now, they can say the way things are, right? But in terms of purpose or, uh, yeah. Okay, anyways, I think it says it right over there. So the one thing, though, that Lewis then talks about is not only the outside creation, but we ourselves, studying ourselves. And, and he really raises a point here. Um, if, you know, if science can't prove a materialist worldview or a religious worldview, the situation might be hopeless. But the one thing and the only thing in the whole universe which we know more than we could learn from external observation, that one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, but we are men. So this, this is important for us to kind of reflect upon who we are as people. And being honest, I think that's the underlying assumption by Lewis. When we are honest about who we are, then we can learn something. Um, so science you know, can answer the question why things are, but, uh, but can't, uh, can't answer the question what we ought to do. But something inside of us directs us towards life in a specific way. We feel bad about certain things. Why do we feel bad about it? Why do you feel bad about things? Because you know the difference between right and wrong. Okay. What if someone says, so this is, of course, now we have to test kind of Lewis's hypothesis, right? Uh, What I say is right, you might say is wrong. So how how do we kind of not dive down into a moral abyss of relativity. <laughs> so denial. Like, and that would be one of the things in the next chapter, right? Where he says, what you really need to do is put the clock away. I don't know if you guys quite understood that. I had to read it twice to figure it out. But basically, if you can't understand the clock, maybe you need to start over rather than pretending that you can still understand it, even though you're getting it wrong. Sometimes you have to Start back at the beginning. 
So agreeing to disagree is a form of denial or acceptance, meaning when we feel bad about things, perhaps our, we should just not feel bad about it. And we should kind of get over it and accept it and affirm it as it is because that's just the way things are. I, I don't know. I hear that often in the world in some form or another is to say, if we could all just agree on this, then no one would feel bad about whatever it is. Surely. But it also depends on the standards that are set because I first read this book way back in the 60s. Sure. When all tech was breaking out with... with Things were changing. Things were changing. And everybody had the attitude, me, myself, and I, and... and 1968 came along and things changed, yep. And I took a class on this actual book, and the liberal views that were taught and the standards that were taught at that time and period were quite different than now how I, when I'm reading this book, I see a total different me because of the standards I've learned, learned, my ethics and morals have changed, Mm -hmm. uh, my maturity level has changed, and so a lot really depends on the standards in which society, your peers, and, and people set to make the distinguish. Right, okay, good. So you, that, that, that comment right there, the, the idea that there are some standards to which now we argue over is part of Lewis's argument, isn't it? The fact that there is a standard then proves that something has to make it. And what he is saying is if you keep testing that and keep going and going and going, you'll wind up at some a mind or something. And, of course, he's arguing that this is, in fact, God. All right. Now, the thing is, though, is that when, um, we, when we kind of reflect upon ourselves, we, we, denial is a very powerful thing. It's not just a river in Egypt, but <laughs> denial is, yeah. And so we often will live our life trying to deny certain things about who we are. And what Lewis is trying to argue is that the fact that you have to deny something actually proves something. And that if you're serious about kind of this question, then you will explore that denial. And you have to kind of face the, what that means. Okay. And so that's why, I mean, agreeing to disagree. I mean, you can be civil about your, your differences. I think that's basically what people say by that. But to, to come to the conclusion that, hey, both, both things can be right. Uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll talk about that in, at, at the end of our reading. Lewis is starting to lay claim that you can't, you can't hold reli- other religious faiths and be... Both can't be right. Both can't be true. So he's kind of getting towards that. Krista. Well, what do you mean? That our emotions are cloud our minds? What if your emotions are truthful and your mind needs to be reoriented? What if you actually think wrong things and your emotions... You're trying to get your emotions in line with your mind, but in fact, your emotions are in fact truthful and your mind needs to get in line with your emotions. Case in point, um, if you look, I mean, 
I mean, there's a variety of instances throughout history where either science is used or some sort of pseudoscience is used for certain things. Uh, you know, let's take slavery, for instance. Uh, there was an argument that African Americans were not, I mean, they were kind of a subspecies. And science was used to kind of prove that. I mean, we look back at it and we're like, this is kind of ridiculous, right? But at that time, that was people who actually believed that stuff. Serious, intelligent people. Okay, now the fact is, though, is that I think at some level, in some point, what was going inside of people was saying, you know, I know these smart people say this, but this, this is just not right. This isn't right. Now, of course, you had a bunch of smart people saying that wasn't right either, right? But, but I think something in human nature said, or in the human will said, well, this is wrong. This is something to be angry about. This is something to change. So, I, I mean, I understand that emotions can cloud things, but sometimes emotions are actually truthful. And that's why I think it's never just one or the other. It's always, it's always a both and. And we, as we kind of consider this, we really have to be uh, aware of both. In fact, from not to talk about the book that some of you have not read, but our previous book, Jennifer Fulbright's Experience, I mean, that book, as smart as she was and some of the things she talked about, right, and some of the, she talked about mere Christianity, but she didn't really go through mere Christianity in her book. She talked about the case for Christ, but didn't really talk about what, what you know, those proofs. That book was often very, what? Emotional. And so, but those emotions, though, were leading her towards something. And I think, on a certain level, that is, that's part of also Lewis's discussion here, is that, our, our emotions are part of who we are. And part of our, who we are is imprinted with God's handiwork. Not that his handiwork can be confused with who he is, right? Just, I think I quote it, the architect won't be confused with the wall in the, in the house. But it can show handiwork of that. Anyways, I, I, I think that's important. So I, I really enjoy that. In fact, I mean, not to get too Lutheranese here, but uh, what is the explanation, the first sentence of the explanation of the first article of the Creed? Anybody remember that? Oh, no, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the other one. Yes, good job, Mary. God has made me and... All creatures, and then continue with it, I mean, whether you know it by heart or not, but God has made what? Purchased in one. Ah, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Christian one. You're thinking too Christianly. The first, art of the cre- uh, first article of the creed is God is, uh, you know, uh, I believe, uh, you know, made all things. Okay, so then the explanation of that is God has made me. And that's very, that's very important for us to kind of consider. Luther and the explanation... He doesn't start with the world and come to the individual. He starts with you and goes the other way. Lewis, on a certain level, is arguing the same point. We know us best because we don't really have to try to know us. We just, we just, this is who we are. So, uh, and so what Luther in that explanation is basically saying, you know that God has made things because he's made you. And not just you, but he gets real specific. My mind, my body, my senses, my emotions, you know, so um, 
So that's that's real important. So, anyways, I, I, not to belabor this point, is that um, as as Lewis says, he gives this analogy about the postman, right? We can we can assume from the fact that the guy in the blue uniform dropped a package off here and went to every other house that there's other packages at, at other houses without actually what you know knowing that. And again, anyways, all all I think I think some people could, will uh, you might be like, well, pastor, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. I would say that's true, but it's a reasonable explanation. And we're kind of getting to that point. So this is reasonable. Okay. Uh, all right, hey, chapter five. Now we have we have cause to be uneasy. All right, so the first chapter, uh, the first chapter we read, just to kind of believe her. Science is very important. Science is essential to us understanding kind of the world around us, but science can't actually answer a question that we still need answering. Okay? That's basically to sum it up. All right, now the next thing, though, is, is that because we don't have the tools to answer this question, that is, is cause for us to be uneasy. All right, so the thing is, is he says, hey, well, before we get too far, three things to remember. One, put the clock back. And he, now, he writes this in the 50s, post-World War II, and he asks a fundamental question, is the world really progressing? Well, in the wake of World War II, he would say, no, I mean, man, we're blowing each other up, right? To a certain extent, I think you could probably still make the same argument, right? I mean, the 20th century, right, was the most deadliest century in the recorded history. and So, I mean, there, there's this notion that everything is progressing uh, is, is maybe kind of a... It's, it's, it doesn't clearly answer everything. You could say we progress in other places, but, you know, degress in other others. But the, basically what he's saying is, hey, your fundamental presumption about the world around you getting better is wrong. You should start over. Let's start over. Let's ask more fundamental questions about the way the world around us. All right, now, and, then, and then the second one is we're talking about a mind or somebody. He wants to make sure that not everyone gets to the Christian God too quickly. So he's just saying, hey, we're just talking about this. It's, very, it's an enigma. It's this thing. But this mind, though, how, you know, how do we know there's something there? The universe itself, Romans chapter 1, you know, there, you know even, even nature kind of demonstrates that there's a thing. A lot of Christians will kind of jump towards the Christian God, but we have to have to follow Lewis in this aspect that, um, especially in Romans. Wait, let's op- we can open up our Bibles. Let's open up our Bibles. We got them. Open to Romans chapter one. Uh, we'll just start at verse eighteen. Just read the first there. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from. Okay, maybe start at nineteen. Okay, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Um, okay, so the idea is that there's this, you know, now Paul is obviously talking to the Christian community, but this idea is that at, he's, he's making the claim that everybody knows there is a God. Okay. Now the funny thing is though, if you turn to Romans chapter three, 
Paul's very peculiar. Oh, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Most especially 20. But then if you look at verse, uh, verse uh, Romans chapter 3, um, verse, well, 10 and a half and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Okay, so he's a little confusing. He says it's evident that there's a God, but... Oh, yeah, wait, nobody really seeks after him or, or understands him. So, needless to say, it's not abundantly clear. That's, that's, I think that's all Paul's making reference to, is that, that the reality of creation does show something, but not necessarily to the clarity that you need, uh, well, with revelation. Okay. So, uh, so the universe itself, it's beautiful, but it's also merciless, which uh, I think is pretty evident as you, you know, if you watch nature or if you watch uh, the Alaskan frontier. Or I forgot, what's, what's, what's that? There's that television show about the family that lives in Alaska. Not the Alaskan frontier, not the Jewel family, but the, the other one. Man, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> I only watched part of it. It's, uh, I would say that there's somewhat of a, yeah, like out in the woods. I don't, I don't want to call them hillbillies. I think they call themselves that, but they're a unique bunch. Anyways, the whole point is, is if you watch them, you realize that, yeah, Nate, I mean, they live in Alaska, which is amazingly beautiful, wonderful, but at the same time, you know, the bears are going to eat them at night. So Mosquitoes. Oh, well, yeah, right, yeah. Mosquitoes, and I mean, it's very dangerous. So, I mean, it is this wonderful thing, but so, um, yeah, you know, the fact that, that there is, so what the universe tells us about God is not necessarily something that's wonderful. And then also the moral law in our minds, you know, we are to do something. So what all that means, though, is, of course, then um, what I already said, that, you know, nature is beautiful, but also at the same time, it's pretty scary, and it might show us something of who God is, and we might not like it. The other thing, too, though, is about the moral law in our minds is that as we discuss these questions, the questions themselves will reveal something about who God is. And Lewis gets to the point, then, that, um, uh, that, that it's, there is a good. There, there's some, some good. And the good, though, unfortunately, we know often the good by the fact that what? We don't, we don't actually do it. You know, we feel bad about it, or we acknowledge that something's wrong. So Lewis has got this great quote, and this is why I read the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 in the chapel. He's got this great quote here. We, we cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the only supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute good, goodness would be fun. They need to think again. Uh, first of all, I love, I love that quote. He talks, uh, in, uh, I think it's in uh, chap- book 2, chapter 2, 
where he talks about, um, I can't remember, it's like Christian, Christian water. It's like watered-down Christian Christianity and how that's just, that's just ridiculous. Um, and this would be the case why. Because when you deny certain aspects of, of the reality of what God is, first of all, it's an idol. But second of all, it, it sets you up for, for terror. You get scared out of your mind. So um, that's really important for us because, oh, not to, we won't jump ahead quite yet. I just want to finish. So, and then, the, then he finally gets to his point is that Christianity won't make any sense unless you realize this fact. That there is something that is requiring us to do something, to do in a certain way, that's right. And that means that there's a wrong. And that, frankly, we know a lot of what's right by the fact that we don't do it. And the fact that we don't do it means there is a need for repentance and forgiveness. It's only after that point that Christianity begins to make sense or answers the question. Um, Okay, Exodus chapter 20. Let's turn to Exodus 20. I really wanted to look at that. Because Exodus chapter 20, for obviously who are in chapel, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments from God. And we didn't go into chapter 19, but... So Exodus chapter 19, they come to Mount Sinai. So the image is God is on the mountain. His people are around it. And this is the only moment in the entire Old Testament where God speaks directly to his people without a mediator. Every other instance, God speaks through a person. This is the one time he doesn't. I mean, to, to the people. I mean, he speaks directly to Moses, he, to the prophet, but to the whole people. Okay? Now, I, I, I've mentioned this many times before. How many times in our life have we said, oh, please, God, if you could only talk to me, or give me a sign, or, or whatever? When we ask that, we're not, rethink, we're not thinking about what Lewis has said here, that God is, is the, the thing that we want the most, but we want to hide from the most, too, at the same time. He's the best thing and the scariest thing all at the same time. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see those two in real life, working in, in real time. So remember, they were in slavery. They've been set free. They saw the Red Sea open. They bred from heaven, holy smokes. A lot of, a lot of wonderful things happen. God is a good, God is good. Holy smokes, he's really watching out for us. And he's letting us off the hook a lot because we complain a lot about everything, but he keeps giving us good things. So, it's great. And now, God's going to talk to us. Oh, man. This is, I mean, this is awesome, right? This is great. So he starts speaking, and the first thing he says is, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Man, that's all, he's still, he's, hey, this is great, that's right, that's right, that was awesome, thanks God. Awesome. Uh, then, he, then, he's, then he recites the Ten Commandments, right? You shall know other gods, uh, you know, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, honor your mother, father, all, all, all of them, Okay. So, you know, that, that, that sounds okay, I guess. But the people's reaction is quite peculiar, isn't it? 
How do they react? No. Yeah, they're terrified. Absolutely scared to death. Literally scared to death. They believe they're going to die. Holy smokes. Well, hopefully we'll rethink your, when you pray to God, please, please talk to me in a way I, I can hear you. Maybe you might not want that anymore. Or maybe you might realize he's already done that, but it's a whole other Bible study. Um, but in this moment, though, what does, Jesus, what does God... Re- okay, so part of it is, is the creation. Is creation in this account, in the Ten Commandments? Does he, does he bring up the first couple chapters of Genesis here? What, what verses does he do? Yeah, verse 9. Go ahead and read it. What happens in the Ten Commandments is he's re, he, he echoes something that's been happening from when? From the beginning of time, creation. When God put things in order. Yeah, so, so, but the thing is, though, is that when God speaks these Ten Commandments, this moment is a callback to Eden. I mean, basically, I mean, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Mount Sinai experience is an echo of what happened in Genesis chapter 2. God is restoring things the way they're supposed to be. He's putting things right. Now, how long did that last, though? I mean, he wasn't even done talking, and they had already freaked out. Holly. Right. I just think of Cain killing Abel. Like maybe he didn't know the ramifications of murder. Right. He sure knew that it was wrong. Yeah. And and then when Moses killed man, when God did not have to tell him, "Thou shalt not murder," that Moses knew that that was wrong before God gave him those commands. Right. So it's been written on our hearts before God ever spoke them to us. Perhaps I don't know. It, it, well, so yes, that's true, but there's a little problem with how we understand that, right? A little thing called sin. And so when we sin, we've, uh, we've, we've lost the image of God. I mean, we didn't lose it like it's annihilated and you can't find it anywhere. But it, it is, it is uh, so hard for us to, to find and figure out, to articulate. So... What Lewis is talking about is that there's a lot of things in our hearts and minds that, are, that we know that are true. No one needs to tell us, like Holly said. Just like the Israelites. But because of sin, we need to have someone outside of ourselves come and reorder or realign what we've all mixed up. So this, this is one of those things where, that Luther, uh, Lewis is, is really based, I mean, he's basically doing a great job of articulating something that we find pretty self-evident, that we can't make it through life on our own, and we need help. And it's not until someone comes and helps us that we will begin to uh, do what's best or do what's right. Shirley? But also, like Lewis said, when you're arguing against sin, you're also arguing against the very power that makes you ignorant. Right. 
Yep. And that's pretty much the excess you'll see in the low stuff. That's right. In, in the first two verses there, when you said, I brought down the music. Yeah, right. And people were getting the argument with them. The arguments were working. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's kind of when you kind of study like that, right? It's, it seems kind of silly. Like, why do we do that? It's kind of peculiar, but we do. So I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't, that's just the way it is. Now the thing is, though, is, so Holly brings up a good point, and this is this is where we're getting at, and this is where Lewis is getting at, is that uh, we we need some help. There's a lot of things that we don't really need to be told to us because we know it's true, but it, it's not until someone actually says it to us that we actually begin to accept and change. Because the moment that someone says something to us, then we are able to begin to, re, uh, well, not we, but by the power of, of the Holy Spirit through grace, uh, to put things back in line. But that's, that's a couple chapters from now. So, Anyways, so the, the whole point is that God is the best thing for them, right? He saved them. He's given them this new way of life together. But at the same time, they're, they're totally freaked out by them. And uh, now what's also interesting, and I, I believe at this point before too, is uh, God is in the darkness. I think that's, that's really important for us too at this point. Is even in the Old Testament, there's still an unveiling of who God is. Now, uh, well, I don't want to get... Well, yeah, my, this is great. So at the end of our, our reading, book two, chapter one, is a brilliant... The last chapter is brilliant. I didn't think about this until right now. We got, let's just turn to that. I can't remember which page it's on. About 38. 38. It's a long chapter. I mean, a long, long paragraph, I should say. And, and what Lewis, Lewis comes to this realization in his life, and so it's a little bit autobiographical, is that darkness would have no meaning if there wasn't light. Oh, so let's just read it. So we'll, we'll start with the ending. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls in water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out 
that it has no meaning. Just as, if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Uh, I mean, I think this is just great. Holy smokes. It knocked my socks off. So, um, so, so, so this, uh, this notion of uh, uh, the Ten Commandments revealing things is that that word that when God, Moses goes into the darkness where God was. I think this is very important for us to kind of consider in terms of, uh, especially in this that, that last chapter, is that there are some places that seem to be a bit scary, but we don't have to be afraid of it, because. Even in those scary places, we might find something that's true. So Moses, or Moses, uh, Lewis starts that chapter, the final chapter, book two, chapter one, with saying that um, there's a lot of truth in other religions and in science and in a variety of other things, and that we really shouldn't be afraid of that. Now, I went to Wheaton College, and we, they tossed this phrase around, which is uh, a nice phrase. All truth is God's truth. I, I think that's true, right? I mean, if it's true, it has to be from God, because God is truth, right? So, but Lewis says, though, is that there's some things that are closer to the truth than other things. And that even though they're not completely the truth, those things that are closer to the truth are things that we can actually approach, even though it might be a little bit scary. Right? And the reason why we can do that is, is that as we begin to understand whatever that uh, close to the truth thing is, we are now then able to articulate the truth for that. So, um, Okay, so at this point, then, he's, he's acknowledging there's two worldviews, those who believe that there is a God and those who don't. Okay, he's kind of dealt with that so far. Now he's approaching now, those who believe there is a God, what, 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 do, what happens there? And there's two basic divisions there, pantheism, and then also uh, the God of the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, which is they're very specific. You can say monotheism if you want. Okay. Now, in pantheism, God is beyond good and evil. He is in everything. And, of course, Lewis says even in cancer. Now, this is where we have to really be serious about the ramifications of believing a certain faith, right? Okay, pantheism. Nobody believes in pantheism anymore. Well, I shouldn't say that. As a word, like self, uh, self-identified uh, pantheist. However... Lewis does use the word, what? Hindus, right? And Hindus are pantheists. I mean, I, I don't think they would refer themselves that way. They'd say, hey, we're Hindus. But, of course, then uh, that means certain things. And Lewis brings out a very simple ramifications of believing that. And that's the, the cancer. If you're a pantheist, then you can even articulate that cancer is good. Because God is above good and evil, so there's really no good and evil. Everything is God. And that even cancer is a good thing. Or, or, or something that you can... So good and evil is just perspective. 
not a thing in itself. But of course, I mean, those who went through cancer, we all know that cancer is bad. And so that, that's a good reason not to be a Hindu. Because <laughs> you're going you're gonna to live a very hard life once you're going through cancer. Well, aren't the people that say that all roads lead to Christ, and there are Christians that say that, if they say all the roads lead to heaven or something like that, right, yeah. that's the one world view or something. Yeah, that's right. That, that, yeah, right. That, that, that's exactly right. One of the things about pantheism is the confusion of the, creat the creature and the creator. We all would say God is everywhere, right? But we wouldn't say that God is the chair. Um, I think either next week or two weeks, Lewis brings up baptism, word and sacrament, let's put it that way. And in that discussion, we'll talk about, yes, God is everywhere, but where are those points that he's saving you? And that, that would be the, that's one of the big Christian differences. Is that, yeah, God is everywhere, but remember, you, the universe is beautiful, but at the same time, merciless. Well, I'll go back to the, oh, I love the Alaskan family, which I can't remember their names. Um, you know, when the bear is biting your face off, you know, you, 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 you really have to believe that this is not a good thing. I mean, let's be real honest. Yeah, Werner Hoitzig, Hertzig, Herzig, He's a German. I'm not going to look to you, Krista, but he's a he's a German filmmaker. He made some lot of really interesting movies. But he, as of late, he he he's making these documentaries, and one of them has to do with like, um, I don't I don't know what he's trying to do. But anyways, he he he, he documented the story about this man who went to Alaska to like live with the bears and like basically try to be pals with the bears. It was the, the different version of the woman who went to Africa, you know, to live with the gorillas. It, yeah, right. It would be like the bear version. But of course, what happened to this guy? Well, he, he got eaten by the bears. Um, and it was, it was kind of this wonderful story. I mean, this is the uh, Herzog or whatever, H-E-R-Z-O-G, how do I say Herzig? Herzig. Um, you know, like he tries to tell the story like it's wonderful. Like we're like, oh, this is very endearing. Yeah, right. And that uh, even his death is like, you know, just a, like a beautiful natural consequence of life together with the bears. It's like, this is crazy. No, I don't agree with this. This is awful. And uh, so he also made a movie, I told this story, he made a movie about, uh, I think it's called Happy People, and it's about Siberians. And uh, it, it's, like, it's like geographical middle of uh, uh, like Russia or something. There's this tiny little village in Siberia, Siberia, which has no roads. I mean, you can, I think you can drive to it in the wintertime because of the ice on the river. Other than that, you got to like haul a helicopter in or hike in or whatever. And so, of course, you know, I had to ask our Siberian friends about this movie. He's seen it, and he's like, uh, so the bishop, Bishop Licken, I asked him, have you seen this movie? Because we, we talk to movies sometimes. And he said, no, he didn't hear about it. And so I said to him, I said, well, it's called Happy People. And he's like, oh, that's interesting, Happy People. Siberian's happy. Like, first of all, he didn't believe that. <laughs> and then as I told him, 
about the scenario, he's like, strange. This is very strange. <laughs> because living in, that, living, living in those circumstances is really, yeah, it's real hard. Now, these people, uh, they were very content. And, and, but the notion that we should say, oh, man, this would be great living for the, the bishop was just peculiar. You'd be like, no, that's just, no. So it was very interesting. So the idea, I mean, so what um, this filmmaker is, is really trying to, to say is that, you know, they're basically good and evil or right or wrong or what's good or bad. It's just a matter of perspective. And if you just had the right perspective, then, then everything would be okay. And the bishop's response was just so funny because he was just like, that's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because <laughs> this is not true. I mean, he's traveled a lot, right? And he, he's like, no, there, there are actually better places to live. <laughs> it's not just a matter of perspective. I mean, you, you can exist and still have a, a fine life in these circumstances, but given the choice, you, you're not going to stick around. I mean, you're going you're gonna to find a better place to live, which, of course, is what everyone does. I mean, if we were to ask the director, Werner Horzig, where he lives, I know where he lives. Southern California. <laughs> You know, so I mean, come on. So denial again. Denial is a very powerful thing. All right, Krista. Yeah, I just I just need to break it. Uh, Christian are joyful. Perhaps um, because the Holy Bible has so much to say about joy, and it could be that they are Christian. Sure. And superior, and they are really joyful. Right. You know, this is my. <laughs> well, joy joy in the midst of suffering does not make suffering good, right? It is a burden to bear. And the vision of heaven, right, removes the absence of tears. I mean, the, things change when you, when you are closer to heaven. So, yeah, so, the, Krista, you're right. One of the things, though, as, as Christians, so the idea that there is no future in the midst of, of bad things is false. I mean, obviously, there is a future. There's hope. There's joy within, in the midst of suffering. That's different than saying, Hey, I'm happy to have cancer, right? No, I mean, nobody's happy to have cancer. If you are, we'll need to talk. So, um, it, it, so okay. So, anyways, so the idea though that this idea of um, good, he's entering into now the the realm of revelation. Okay. Uh, what Holly had said earlier was real helpful. We. Our, our experiences can only get us so far. Basically, what, it could get us to the point that we know that something's off, not right. But in terms of the answer to the question or the answer to the problem, that is where revelation needs to come in. And what I mean by revelation is something from the outside entering into our worldview. So think about you on the west coast, you know, California, looking out towards the west and the sun is setting. There's a point where, right, the sun drops out of your horizon. The horizon is the limit of your knowledge. What revelation means is, is that there's something coming back over the horizon, something that you'll never be able to get to yourself, but that God has come over the horizon and now entered into your world. So the, and, and this is kind of where um, Lewis is headed to. So the, the specific God 
holds that certain things are actually good and should be a certain way, but it's not until he actually tells us that we can then begin to put it together. So Holly's right. The Ten Commandments is, is a great scenario. It's not as if they didn't have, you know, I mean, it's not like they went around killing people and they're like, hey, this is okay. And then all of a sudden God says, don't murder. Be like, whoa, man, I didn't, I didn't know that. Or even um, uh, the, the idea about their faith in God and uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. And obviously stealing, adultery. I mean, all that stuff. All that stuff is pretty, pretty uh, self-evident, you could say. Now, there are some unusual things, carved images. Again, I'm sure there would be some remnant from the past in their, bot, in their society, their culture. But the fact is, is there was such a heavily influence of the Egyptian culture on their faith that they, some of them, obviously, obviously some of them did because the first chance they got, they made a golden calf, right? So that was part of their... So there's some things that were unusual or unknown. But it's, it's this putting things together, aligning them, putting them back right that God is, is doing. And, and that's part of Revelation, this idea that's coming around. Um, any, any other questions or any other comments? I, I think um, I just I wanted to get to this point here is to realize that, you know, as Lewis is arguing, the fundamental point about this argument is that it's reasonable. I think one of the, I mean, especially if you ever read the comments in YouTube or any other section, uh, which I, I, like for instance, Jennifer Fulweiler, she had this little web webisode and it wasn't that great, but whatever. I read the comments, and of course, like it takes two comments before someone says, you know, Christianity's for idiots. Or, you know, you're, you're just idiots for believing this, or it's superstition, all that jazz. Hopefully by now, you're understanding that the Christian faith is reasonable. This is something that is, is, is not something that you have to kind of shut your mind off in order to believe and accept. Um... Then, in terms of the notion that, oh, hey, all religions want to control people and then manipulate people, and it's really for, like, bad things. And, oh, man, the Crusades were terrible and killed a bunch of people. They, it is true, they killed a lot of people. But that is not necessarily specific to Christianity, is it? Because um, the nation-state in the 20th century, a godless, atheistic nation-state, killed more people than the Christians ever did. So, you know, we should be condemning atheists too then. Communism, China, Russia. <laughs> so, okay. Just ask the bishop about that and he will tell you. Um, so, so the fact is, is that it, it, the Christian faith is not only reasonable, it works towards good. And then, of course, it doesn't mean that you're anti, intellectual, intellectual. And in fact, I, I don't put just Christian faith here, but like Egyptians... They had a worldview, and I don't want to, maybe we can get this into this later, but ancient cosmologies are very, very interesting. Uh, the Egyptians believed gods were present, they were part of their lives, and they built the pyramids. They're not idiots. Uh, the Mayans, the same way. The uh, Zoroastrians, the Babylonians, modern astronomy came about. The Greeks and the Romans and their pantheon of gods, arithmetic, math, 
So it, it, these, these uh, false dichotomies, our antithesis, are rampant in our society. And they're just kind of made like, ah, you're a Christian, you must be an idiot. And maybe you don't know it yet, but you are. Okay. <laughs> and they'll, they'll talk about Westboro Baptist. They'll talk about, you know, uh, Moody Bible Institute and how you can't dance or something. I don't know. I mean, whatever. But the fact is, is that this is, it's just not true. I mean, we're just talking about historical facts then. Okay. And so Lewis really, I mean, that, that's one of the great things underlying this whole scenario that maybe you don't think about because you're like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm not an idiot. But it's something to keep in mind when we start talking to people. And Fulweiler made that point in her book too. As she started exploring, she was like, oh my gosh, these people are like, physicists and they believe in they believe in in God you know it actually made them more reasonable this is something that as as you consider these kind of points that Lewis is bringing up this is this is something that's fundamental to us in our Christian faith Barb Uh, what was it? What did it air? What did it say in there? Fifty. It was delivered in the early forties. Because it was part of the World War II business. I don't know when he was converted. I think in the fifties. Yeah, in the book, the book is the fifties. When did he become a priest? He did not become a priest. Nope, just a lay guy, layman. He was a uh, he's a, uh, a literature professor. I can't remember, like middle age, middle medieval literature or something. Because he was so intelligent, I, I can just remember the Right. He was so intelligent that he and he had these friends. And yeah, right. I can't remember their names, but they just constantly talked about right. that there isn't a god and stuff. The inklings, right. Well, yeah, he was a young man, but I wouldn't say he necessarily switched. I mean, he had a lot of wrestling going on. Oh, but, yeah. but the fact is, is that, um, well, even uh, even C.S. Lewis, and then uh, what's the guy who case for Christ? What's his name? Strobel. You know, he sets out to study how there is no God, and then becomes a Christian. And and even okay, so this is one thing that you got to think about, Barb, is that even in the biblical narrative, Saint Paul. He wasn't Christian. He wasn't like articulated in the Christian faith. But of course, what was he? He was a very bright Jewish boy, and things clicked. Now, of course, he, he spent some time with Ananias, right? What is it, three years, right? But in terms of the things he wrote and the depth he wrote, pretty profound. So basically, what, what, what you're finding out is that what God is, can do is really simply align something that you already knew, and you, you literally are missing the key to change your life. Yeah. But sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes that happens over years and years and decades. All right. So anyways, so actually, uh, we haven't talked about, I wanted to talk a little bit about we ran out of time, is the ramifications of being a Hindu. And uh, we, I, I've said this to my wife millions of times, but, we went to the Hindu Mandir my first year as a pastor. We brought college kids to, uh, we wanted to 
know what they believed by the way they worshipped. So we took a tour of the Mandir up on uh, Highway 59 in Bartlett. You know, that amazing building, right? And uh, what was interesting is our discussion afterwards with the college kids. Since they're pantheists, they can all say that, well, it's okay for you to be a Christian, it's okay for me to be a Hindu, because we're all touching the elephant in different spots, but it's all the same elephant. Do you know that? I mean, okay, so I think, I think we might have mentioned that before. All roads go to heaven, of course. And I just asked a simple question about, they handed a card of one of the teachings of the, the whatever, the, the reincarnation of the, the, whatever it is. I can't remember. Well, for, I can't pronounce it either. I, yeah, I, anyways, I won't attempt because it'll sound like I'm making fun of them. Uh, anyways, it was, uh, my happiness is your happiness. And I think I might have, you know, this is a diabolical form of happiness going along in that saying because the result of all my actions is myself, my happiness. So I work completely for myself. Now, the college kids didn't like to hear that because they're like, well, that's not what they meant. Okay, maybe that's what they said. And so I'm working very hard to make me happy by making you happy, which, of course, might make you happy, right? Except for when I think my happiness can be your happiness. I think I give this silly example, right? I love ice cream. That makes me happy. So my presumption is what makes me happy is going to make you happy, so I'm going to give you ice cream for dessert. Well, it turns out you're lactose intolerant. (laughs) I'll live my entire life never being happy because I'll never have ice cream. <laughs> Anyways, no, no. So, so this whole discussion is, is that we really have to seriously think about some of the ramifications of these faiths, and do it in a way that actually is very constructive, not destructive. I mean, we have to we have to ask these questions uh, and apply some of our, our Christian doctrine to. I mean, the, the the ramifications of our Christian doctrine to other faiths, so that we can uh, see what happens. Anyways, we need to pray and go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.